The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. So it's really nice to, to join you all today, both uh, here in New Paltz Live uh, for first talk in the Zendo uh, live in quite some time in New Paltz and uh, joining the rest of you virtually as well. Uh, it's, it's really a joy to sit together with the uh, the full Sangha in this way. Uh, fall has seemed short-lived here in New Paltz. Uh, I guess I can't complain much when we look at areas like Buffalo. Uh, but uh, the other day we did have a dusting of snow. And even this morning there was uh, um, some snow coming down. And Ruby, uh, my dog, who many of you probably see photobombing uh, most Zoom sessions here in the Zendo uh, has definitely voiced her displeasure about the snow. Um, as she's getting older, her sort of puppy wonderment with snow has moved more to a, are you kidding me, uh, kind of state of being about it. So, uh, and while I'm talking about, about Ruby, we jokingly or I jokingly kind of think of her as the abbess and leader of our Sangha here. Um, she's got everyone well-trained. When, when Sangha members enter new and old, they um, must give her in the form of a T-R-E-A-T. We can't say that word aloud. Uh, and then she will take up camp on the Hishiki uh, in full prostration. Uh, and her practice is steadfast. It, it's a solid practice. She sometimes breathes a little loud um, and has some difficulty with the sitting still thing, but she's on the cushion a solid 20 out of the 24 hours of a day. So I think that qualifies her uh, as being able to lead our community. Um, deeply, and she offers quite a bit. And while I joke about it, that there may be a reason for my joking about her being the uh, the leader of the group here, and we'll get into that a bit further into this talk. Um, I am fortunate also in this community to have some village zendo practitioners that go way back. Um, Jiryu and Keishin and Kancho all live in the area. Uh, Manchin is uh, planning on being here and has been here quite a bit. So we had long-term village under practitioners and new practitioners joining me um, with practice histories of their own. Uh, so it was kind of like a little community sprouted up very rapidly. And um, being an old uh, Luddite in terms of technology, although I, I have a degree in dance, and thought that perhaps that would translate over to web design. It most certainly has not. And so newer Sangha members called me out quite early and said, your website is crap. This is just garbage. Um, you need to work on it. And I, I agreed and they're willingly and, and please don't look at it yet. We, we need some time, but coming soon, coming soon will be an updated, better website. It worked well enough to get some folks here. So, so it, did, it did something but it could be so much better. Um, and so we had a meeting about uh, what a new emerging you know, Zen center looks like and, and what do we need? And words were used like um, branding and uh, product and <laughs> things that make me bristle to my core that I understand you know, there is a value in, but I go, ah, you know, those are words I, I don't wanna hear. And, and one of the members, uh, you, you know, shot back a note after, uh, you know, the notes of the meeting uh, for everyone uh, after 
we had had this meeting. And in it, uh, during the meeting, I had said, you know, I'm not interested in making a big splash. You know, uh, I'm newish at this whole thing. Uh, I just, you know, kind of want to wave to to the community and say, I'm here and they're sitting a couple times a week and, and you can come and join me. And so in the notes, uh, everything was written about what we had talked about. And, and around that, it was written um, imposter syndrome. <laughs> and in all fairness to the author of the notes, I think I described it as imposter syndrome myself first. And it was in quotes, but I went, oh, uh oh, <laughs> imposter syndrome. What does that mean? Uh, and, you know, I had to look at it and say, yeah, yeah, I, I, that is probably the best way of describing it. And imposter syndrome for me is, is a really old story. Uh, I, I think it's not an uncommon story, but for me, it probably really settled in around third grade. I was held back in third grade, and I remember uh, being taken to the school shrink with my mom. Oh, the abbess is coming to pay us a hello. Yes. Am I doing all right? <laughs> so uh, we were taken to the taken into the shrinks room, and there were Rorschach tests and all other kind of cognitive tests that were done. Um, and I think a lot of it, honestly, was came down to improper gender play. Uh, they wanted me to play more with boys and do boy things, and a lot of it was that I was playing with girls and doing girl things, and they weren't excited about that. So somehow. Uh, keeping me back in third grade, although I was struggling for sure, um, for a lot of reasons, was the answer. And I think that set up a story for me that uh, somehow uh, I got a pass. Uh, and that pass was because I already knew I wasn't like everybody else. I was a queer kid. So I knew I, I wasn't like everyone else. But there, uh, it was confirmed. And, and it wasn't confirmed with like, oh, you're queer. It was confirmed with you're bad, you're less than, you're different. And uh, I think that really, you know, settled in. And it's an old reflexive muscle memory story for me. Um, so I had to look and, and do a little research about what imposter syndrome is when it sort of came into being. So it was coined in 1978, uh, and I found this interesting mostly to describe women who were advancing in the workforce at that time, uh, a phenomenon that they were seeing there. However, by the 80s, it was a shift that uh, became much more widespread and uh, people saw it you know, across genders and, and everything. And while it's not an official diagnosis in the, the DSM, I do think it's something, and maybe I'm just saying this so I feel better about myself, but I think it's something we all experience uh, in some places in our life. Um, and there's probably a reason we experience this, if, if I may venture a guess at it. And so many uh, of our structures, of our institutions that we must engage in, you know, in this world are developed in this sort of stratified way of, you know, you enter into this, uh, you know, institution. I, I see it in my college students that I work with in college health as a nurse um, who are really focused on, I have to get the A in chemistry so I can ensure that I get uh, my master's degree from this other institution so I can get the best job and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's valuable and it's important and it's true. 
you know, in many ways, this is a, a true story. But for some, it may be a setup when we start using, you know, some sort of litmus test to see ourselves against our peers. Uh, so maybe this is true in the Zendo as well for, for people when they walk through the door. I know when I um, first came into Zen practice, I could see those really special people that had shaved heads and a sheet over their shoulder. I thought, wow, they, they've got to be, you know, the experts here. And then there was that sort of middle management with also robes, but not as, as fancy as the shaved head people. And they had a lobster bib, so they had something going on. And then there were the street clothes wearing people, you know, bringing up the rear. Uh, and uh, I, I sort of jokingly say this, but, you know, uh, walking through the door of a Zen center, it, it probably appears that way, you know, uh, or I shouldn't say it probably. I think it definitely appears that way, you know, to the outside eye, at least. And um, there is a I think the true the same is true as a nurse. Uh, and uh, there's an old saying, nurses eat their own. And uh, it's sometimes true in some institutions, but in better institutions, nurses help each other to become better nurses. And there's a, uh, a theorist, a nursing theorist, Patricia Benner, uh, who wrote a, a nursing school must read, and it's called From Novice to Expert. And I find it really interesting that in the, uh, in the ceasing of notions, one of the last chapters is from novice to expert. So it shows up in our Zen literature too. But uh, uh, the full title is From Novice to Expert, Excellence and Power in Clinical Nursing Practice. And she describes this five-tiered sort of trajectory that nurses uh, undergo as they become nurses and become more and more skilled at being a nurse in whatever field it is. And it starts with the novice, you know, who really doesn't have any idea uh, what it is, first day on the job, first day doing patient care. And then there's the beginner. And from the beginner, it goes to uh, the competent and from competent to proficient and from profi proficiency to uh, an expert. And she describes all of these sort of stages. And, and I think we can apply those in so many areas of our life, you know, that I'm a beginner or I'm a novice and then I become proficient at something. The thing that I find most beautiful about Benner's uh, description of this is she says it's not linear. This is not a, a linear journey. We um, aren't just, you know, become beginners and then have a final destination. And, and I think the same is true in our Zen practice as well. And it, it behooves us to remember that, that, uh, you know, perhaps we get better and better at, uh, you know, staying in our expert area, but forgetting about our novice mind and our beginner's mind and having the clarity and the openness you know, as Suzuki Roshi so, you know, gorgeously said, um, of the beginner is, is a loss if we only think of ourselves as experts. So uh, I mentioned in, in my last talk that I had given uh, about starting teaching this Koru mindfulness training to uh, emerging adults, to our college population. And uh, Koru, while being secular, uh, you know, and that was a lot of what I had to learn is how to teach this in a secular way. Uh, 
offers, you know, willingly bows to its Buddhistic roots and says, yes, much of what we offer here comes from the Buddha Dharma, but they're offering it in a secular way. And the beautiful thing about it for me is that it reminds me of really the basics of practice. I can get swept up in being a Zen student and forget about the most basic aspects of our practice. Uh, so Kuru stresses observing mind, you know, really just sinking into our observing mind and using breath or our body awareness or um, sounds in the environment to be an anchor. Uh, and isn't that what our Zazen is, allowing us to be anchored so that we can kind of get out of that thinking, doing mind and uh, just see what's going on, observe it. Uh, and I think they use the, the Buddhist image of the rushing river of thought and that, you know, mindfulness practice is a ladder or a rope out of the river. And once you've noticed that you're, you know, in the river, you're already back out of it. And they're very gentle about it. Like, yep, that's what mind does. Mind creates thoughts and you're going to create thoughts and you're constantly going to be, uh, yes, ma'am. You're constantly going to need to come back to your breath again and again and again, time after time. Uh, so I have to finish this talk. Yeah, I know. You're very, I love you so much, but you have to go. <laughs> oh, so the zazen I practice now isn't the zazen I practiced the first day that I sat zazen. And, uh, you know, many years ago. And it's not different from that first period of Zazen that I sat many years ago. It's not separate from it. So in the Zen tradition, as I was saying earlier, it's filled with forms, you know, so, so form laden. And as a, a uh, you know, uh, a person who was raised Catholic and a ex-dancer, I think that that is resonant for me. I think it might be why I fell into Zen practice is I found the forms um, to be supportive. Uh, and, you know, it, it's got things like uh, a lineage and a koan syllabus. So if you want to so practice in that way, it's really developed well for, for you to do that. Um, however, Unlike other institutions uh, that have that sort of trajectory of, you know, beginner, you know, advanced beginner, novice, uh, competent, proficient, expert, uh, early on in your Zen practice, if you do it for a while and you meet with a teacher in interview, you are more than likely going to hear that teacher tell you that they have nothing special to offer you. There is nothing that you are not already in possession of that they can give you. There's nothing there. Uh, and, and like me, for me, that was so refreshing to hear the first time I heard it, that there was nothing that this teacher could give me. And yet I still needed to believe that the drag they were wearing and the incense and the bells, you know, there was something more there so that I practiced and continued to practice um, to really, really look at what is this? So maybe there's some upaya in our form and the structure of the form. Uh, meeting with students in uh, an interview is, it's incredible. I, I, I feel so privileged to have that opportunity to meet with folks and, and discuss their practice and hopefully offer a little guidance. Um, I know I walk away having my practice honed in every encounter I have. Um, 
So recently I was working with a student who brought me a koan that I, I hadn't forgotten about it, but uh, I, I hadn't thought of it in a while and I hadn't heard it in a while. And I went, oh, I love this koan. Uh, and so I'm going to share it with you today because I, I think it, it speaks a little bit to, to what I'm talking about in terms of imposter's finger, imposter, imposter syndrome. Uh, so when he was asked about Zen, Master Gutai simply stuck up one finger. He had a boy attendant who a visitor asked, what kind of teaching does your master give? The boy held up one finger too. Hearing of this, Gutai cut off the boy's finger with a knife. As the boy ran away screaming with pain, Gutai called after him. When the boy turned around, Gutai stuck up one finger. The boy was suddenly enlightened. When Gutai was about to die, he said to the assembled monks, I have received the one finger Zen from Tenryu. I've used it all my life, but have not exhausted it. Having said this, he entered Nirvana. It's so dramatic, you know, as a queer, I just love it. It's so filled with drama. It's like 1940s Betty Davis drama, you know, so, so uh, big and dramatic. But, uh, you know, how do you point? To, as it describes in describes in the commentary, Muman describes it as being uh, that Gutai skewers through everything. You know that that thread. How do you express with with one gesture? You know the thread that runs through all phenomena throughout space and time. How do you how do you show it? So I feel for I feel for this boy. Not only because he's had his finger cut off and has probably got a really bad bleed going on and needs to uh, seek care immediately, but because, uh, you know, if we look at it metaphorically, you know, he's had the carpet pulled out from under him because he's relied on uh, being an imposter, you know, relied on, on some uh, mimicry of, of something as opposed to a true showing of being skewered through. So Utai used it his whole life and didn't wear it out. And it reminds me of um, this nursing theorist, Benner, you know, in her five stages, I, I wanna link them like to your fingers almost, you know, so that the thumb is novice. It's so important. I mean, you know, as hominids, we can do nothing. This is my one up on you, Ruby. I got the thumb. <laughs> she may be abyss, but I have a thumb. I have novice mind. And then, you know, maybe the index is beginner's mind. And then we have the middle finger being competent and, you know, proficiency. And finally, the pinky is expert. You know, it's sort of stuck out in the air, you know, holding a teacup, you know, that's the expert mind. It, it doesn't serve us much, you know, it's kind of in the way. <laughs> a lot of the time, I think, good to have when you need to get a full grip of something, but, you know, not, not really necessary, but, you know, the novice and the beginner mind, you know, that pincher, that, that's important. Uh, and there's a lot as a nurse I can do with one finger, you know, really important things I can do with one finger. I, I can feel for a pulse, you know, uh, and find a place to do a blood draw or put in an IV if needed, but to be of service, to be uh, of use, I need all five of those fingers, you know, to actually put the IV in or to do something of value uh, 
you know, our, our awareness of the universality of all phenomena is not enough. <laughs> is what I'm saying. All of all of the fingers come into play, you know, but but I find it interesting that maybe awareness, if I use my, you know, metaphor is, you know, beginner's mind, you know, it's really there, where there's the infinite possibility, we're not trapped by uh, all the all the other parts that are just as important. Uh, so we may practice with an idea of a destination, you know, that's part of the way we practice. And as students, we may feel like imposters from time to time. And as teachers, we may feel like imposters uh, from time to time. And uh, maybe it's not such a bad thing. You know, maybe it's, it's not horrible to feel that way, uh, to doubt ourselves a bit. So, you know, we don't get caught up in a story about who we think we are. So, you know, using these Koru skills that they've uh, been, been uh, you know, sharing with me and that I'm sharing with these college students, I see that, you know, getting out of that rushing river of thought uh, gives me the ability to really see um, no separation. You know, no, nothing is separate. The universality, you know, to see ties one finger uh, in that way. And, you know, getting out of the river of thought when you see yourself as not separate from anything else, then you get the opportunity to see that what an imposter you really are, that this skin bag that's got a name and an identity and all of it attached to it is in it of itself, you know, just being an imposter. We're, we're nothing else than imposters. Um, and that recognition gives you agency, you know, to utilize all the aspects of your mind, not just the expert mind, but all of it. So I'm going to leave you with a poem that I, I kind of came across by accident, as I most often do when I'm looking for something to, to sum it all up. And it's from a Japanese poet. Uh, he died in was I think he was born in 1909 and and died uh, in 2014, lived a very long life. And his name is Michio Mado, and he's famous for a Japanese children's song um, called Little Elephant, apparently, which I couldn't find, but it's it's worth a Google. I'll leave it to Jifu. She'll, she'll find it. Um, but uh, he uh, wrote a poem entitled Fingers, and uh, I'm going to share it with you. Every time I look at my hands with my fingers open on my lap, I am moved. Tiny fingers are pulsating as if they were petals of the flowers that bloomed in me. They look proud, they look happy, snuggling with each other, as if they had never been forced to do anything mean, anything despicable by me.